pray for us. Father in heaven, as we have just sung our boasting and our confidence is that you have provided us with a righteousness outside of ourselves by virtue of the righteousness of your Son. We pray that all of us would have the truth of the imputed righteousness of Christ uh, pressed deep into our minds and hearts this morning as we come to worship you. We pray, our God, that you would send out your word with power, with conviction, and with full assurance. We pray that you would change us as we come to worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Luke now records, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, and literally, it's the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades with the word of God indoors forever. Well, many years ago, I lived in Philadelphia, and I had a membership to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and I loved to go to the special exhibits that they had, and they would oftentimes give you an interpreter as you walk through whatever gallery you were going through, and they would tell you what's happening in each painting that you're looking at. What was the the purpose of the author in Uh, of the artist in painting this particular painting. On one occasion, there was a Renoir exhibit, and I was struck with the fact that almost every painting I went to, Renoir was contrasting things that on the surface didn't seem like contrast. He was drawing attention to things uh, in his paintings that you might otherwise miss if you were just looking on and you didn't know what his intention was. There is one such painting, it's called The Boating on the, on the Seine, and uh, there is a picture of two women in a small boat on a, on a lake, and there's a sailboat behind them, and there's a beautiful French uh, countryside house, and everything about the painting seems to be drawing your attention to the fact that uh, these ladies are enjoying this wonderful day out on this lake, and yet the real purpose of the painting is seen in a little detail in the back where Renoir put a train with smoke billows coming out. And if you remember, this is the time of the Industrial Revolution and the Mechanical Revolution, and what he's highlighting is that now people can go to places that they otherwise could never have gotten to, and the real focus of the painting was in the background. I've often thought that's a helpful illustration when you look at Jesus' parables. Jesus is always contrasting things so that you really get what you otherwise might not get out of the story. If you were to look at um, this scene as it unfolds, if we were to live in Jesus's day and we had been standing there and we're looking on at this Pharisee and this tax collector, I think it's probably safe to say that most of us would say the Pharisee was the godly one and the tax collector was the ungodly one. The Pharisee was pleasing to God and the tax collector was unpleasing to God. And yet what Jesus is going to do is he's going to juxtapose that And he's going to show us what's going on in the hearts of these two men. And he's going to tell us 
who it is that gets justified and goes to heaven rather than just going up into the temple. Now, we want to consider this uh, in two parts this morning. First, we want to look at what it is to judge according to appearance, what we would have to conclude if we looked at this account without the interpretation of Luke and the Lord Jesus Christ telling us what's going on here, what, what it is to judge this according to appearance, and then what it is to judge this with righteous judgment. Now, notice that Luke, if you take away that introduction, which tells us a world about the purpose of this parable, tells us in verse 10 there were two men. They are doing the same thing in the same place. Both these men are going to the same temple to worship the same God. They're going at the same time. They're both members of the covenant community. They are going to the place God has appointed for worship, and they are both praying, presumably, to the same God of Israel. And so the first scene that we have here uh, shows us two men who look perhaps on the surface identical, and yet Luke has told us one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. Now, we tend to think of Pharisees as the educated, wealthy, elite religious leaders who were ruling and reigning everything in Israel, and that's not entirely true. The Sadducees were far more educated than the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests. The Pharisees were sort of like professional blue-collar pastors in Israel. And so their social status would have been closer to the bottom of the elite than to the top. And then Luke tells us that there's a tax collector, and as we know, tax collectors were despised. They, um, they set their own salaries, so to speak. They could deal with people however they wanted to. They could tax people, oftentimes taxing the rich uh, more than the poor, but oppressing people, practicing usury, and hated and despised by everyone. And you get the sense in what we read this morning about Zacchaeus that he doesn't have any friends. Maybe the other tax collectors, but the bottom of the barrel of society. In fact, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he often couples tax collectors and prostitutes. And he says, these are the kinds of people who were despised, who were looked down on, because they were notoriously wicked. Now, um, if we were to look at this account, and we were to hear the Pharisee praying, notice in verse 11, he, first of all, thinks he's addressing God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like these sinners. I thank you that I'm not like extortioners, unjust adulterers, or this tax collector. I fast twice a day. I pray. I give of all my tithes. And, you know, on the surface, it looks like the Pharisee is a God-pleasing, God-honoring, righteous man. You know, it has been said that we have a tendency to be too hard on the Pharisees at times, and we miss that what he's doing in giving and even fasting and praying, these things were things that God wanted for his people. He, he was so religiously devout that he let it hurt him in two places, his wallet and his stomach. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. He was willing to give a tenth of everything that he had, and he was w- willing to sacrifice and give up food and, and, and give himself to the, that religious and zealous fasting. And so he was a man who was, who was sacrificing religiously. He was giving things up. He was doing what many people in the church today who do know the Lord wouldn't do. He was willing to allow his life to be invaded by his religious convictions. 
And so on the surface, as we look at these two men, you would have to think that the Pharisee is the one who's pleasing to God and the tax collector is displeasing to God. Now, Sinclair Ferguson set out a contrast over this parable years ago. And this is what he said. If you're looking at the tax collector, you're going to have to conclude this. The tax collector had been an unmerciful, money-extorting man. He had been unjust to the poor and the weak. He probably was an adulterer. He doesn't pray in what is an acceptable manner or form compared to many of the other prayers that we see in Scripture. In fact, his prayer, which we'll look at in a minute, is the only time you see anyone praying this prayer in specific anywhere in the Gospels. So he doesn't pray in sort of the acceptable manner by which uh, leaders in Israel would have been expected to pray or the righteous would have uh, been seen or heard to pray. And then the tax collector, Ferguson said, probably hadn't been in the temple in years. We can conclude that this is probably a one-off thing for him, the first time in a long time. Whereas if we look at the moral virtues of the Pharisee, the Pharisee was a man of discipline and prayer. The Pharisee gave a tithe of all that he had. In fact, listen to this. Ferguson said, if a church were made up entirely of Pharisees, its church budget would double, if not triple, if not actually quadruple. I used to say to some of the young men in my church, you know, um, not to spend your life running after money in order to impress your in-laws because the reality is in the church most men would be happy if their daughters married a social conservative, politically uh, zealous, a religiously committed uh, man who's good with money, like a Pharisee. They were good externally with these things. Ferguson says the Pharisee was thankful for things in his life. We don't hear Thanksgiving rolling off the tongue of the tax collector, but we hear the Pharisee saying, I thank you. He, he presumably believes that he is actually thanking God for where he is. And on a prima facie reading of this passage, the Pharisee lives a far better life in society than the tax collector does, and the Pharisee is more like me or more like you than the tax collector is. And I think that's the rub, that there are plenty of people in the church, if they were looking on to this scene, would have to say, I am far more like the Pharisee than I am like the tax collector, at least at this point or moment in my life. Now, there's always a twist to Jesus' stories. Um, I, I sometimes like to imagine if we could undo all that we are comfortable with knowing and all that we've experienced in the church, and we step back and we read the Bible as if we had never heard these things the first time, what would our initial reaction be? It would be What Ferguson says, it would be that we would think the Pharisee was righteous and the publican was unrighteous. That would be uh, according to our propensity to judge according to appearance. But notice Jesus says about the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now notice what Luke says in verse 9. He tells us the purpose of this parable at the outset. He says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see, Jesus goes to the heart motive. What is what's happening inside the mind and the heart 
of the Pharisee. Yes, we, we will know what's happening based on what he says. We will hear those little undertones of self-righteousness, but Jesus is telling us that at ground zero, in an unjustified person's heart, is a deep self-righteousness that manifests itself in pride and in despising others. So that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, you know, it's interesting. The Pharisee is really praying to himself um, when he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Then every other pronoun is I, 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 I. You see, he's, he's not really thanking God. He's praying to himself because he trusts in himself and he despises others. Um, You know, before I say anything else, I will say I have plenty of this in my own heart where I'm sure you do too. You can catch yourself thinking more highly of yourself and looking down on others, whether because of socioeconomic relations or whole-of-life experience or whatever's going on in this person's life or where they live or what kind of job they work, or a hundred thousand things that we could say, I'd never be like that. I'm I'm thankful that I'm not like that. Um, You know, Jesus is not condemning righteousness. He's not condemning the Pharisee for giving and fasting and praying. He's condemning self-righteousness. And he's saying deep in this man's heart was a dependence on himself. And, you know, it's interesting. Our consciences are hardwired to the covenant of works. Why? Why is everyone who is outside of Christ trying to save himself or herself? Because we're all, we're all descended from Adam, and our consciences are deeply hardwired to want to perform in order to be accepted by God. You know, the Pharisees boasted about having a high view of the law of God, but they actually had a very low view of the law of God because if the Pharisee had a high view of God's law, he would come into the presence of God and he would say, Oh God, I am nothing and I have nothing, and anything that I have has been given to you and I don't deserve it, and I'm no different than anyone, and I'm less than the least of all the saints, and I'm the chief of sinners, as the greatest apostle could say. And, O wretched man is me, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he would have acknowledged and confessed what he was, even if he thanked God for what things God had given him, he would have acknowledged what he was. Um, I've been thinking a lot this year about how much humility and gratitude we all lack. Think about how often do I really thank God for everything that I have from the heart? Um, How often do I just stop and just start thanking him and enumerating the many things he's given me that I don't deserve? Um, That's what the Pharisee should have done. But the Pharisee was deeply self-righteous. Now, um, it's very interesting. The tax collector has a very different posture. If you were looking at these two men, the, the Pharisee, he's, he's looking up proudly, thanking himself for his greatness and his accomplishments. And, the, and, and Jesus says that the, the publican couldn't even lift up his head, 
but he, he beat his breast. Now, I'm not saying this in any kind of sexist way. Please don't hear that. But in the ancient world, men typically did not beat their breast. You find the women wailing and putting on the shows of um, despondency and distress and agony of, of spirit. But here, it's the only time, again, we have a man doing that. He, he has put himself in a position of absolute helplessness and hopelessness, knowing he was nothing and had nothing. Now, before we look at that, I want to point this out. It's very interesting when you start to see what's actually happening. The Pharisee, and this is very important, the Pharisee is so full of himself that all he can do is look down at others to make himself feel better. The publican, the tax collector, is so busy feeling the weight of his sin that he doesn't have time to look at the Pharisee. Isn't that interesting? The Pharisee is all about looking down at the tax collector. The tax collector doesn't even have time to lift his eyes over to the Pharisee. Now, that's important because you might be here and you might say, you know, my life has modeled more the tax collector than the Pharisee, and hooray me and boo Pharisees. Uh, J. Gretchen Machen, I have to read this to you. J. Gretchen Machen, the great... Uh, theologian from Westminster, Philadelphia, said, no doubt we think we could avoid the Pharisee's error. God was not for him, we say, because he was contemptuous toward the publican. We will be tender to the publican, as Jesus taught us to be, and then God will be for us. It is no doubt a good idea. It is well that we are tender toward the publican, but what is our attitude toward the Pharisee? Alas, we despise him in a truly Pharisaic manner. We go up to the temple and we pray, we stand and we pray to ourselves, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are, proud of my own righteousness, uncharitable toward publicans, or even as this Pharisee. You see, you can turn the story. And you can say, as you look at this, well, I may not be that, I'm this, and I'm thankful that I'm not that. And that's to miss what's happening in the story Jesus is painting. Now, um, I want us to consider, as we keep looking at this contrast, uh, the, fair, the, the publican's prayer. Notice in verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I noted in the reading that it's actually the sinner. There's the definite article there, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And actually, it's not God have mercy on me. This is very interesting and very important. He is crying out for mercy. He's crying out that God would have mercy on him because he knows what he is. He knows that he's helpless. He knows that he's hopeless. He knows that his only chance is if God in mercy turns his face toward him and will pardon him. And he is crying out to God, not just for mercy in general, but he literally says, God, propitiate me, the sinner. God, propitiate me. What does that mean? God, provide for me a propitiatory sacrifice that will take away my sin. You see, sometimes people look at this passage and they wrongly say, well, what matters in this passage is this man has humility and humility justifies you. Well, that would be to turn your humility into something that commends you before God. This man's humility is supremely important. Without humility, 
As the writer of Hebrews says, in another way, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And Jesus ends this by saying, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And if we're going to be justified, we must be humble and broken and remorseful. And this man is repentant. He doesn't even confess any particular sin. It's interesting. He just says, on the whole, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, the biggest of sinners. When I look at myself, as Jesus said, I should see what what amounts to a mass of sin in my eye. And when I look at my brother or sister, it should look like a speck in comparison. Because I live with this all day. And that tax collector does that. He says, oh, God, propitiate me, provide a sacrifice for me, the sinner. The whole of me is sinful. You know, that's, that's really the heart of the Reformation, getting to this place where we can say not just my tongue, not just my mind, not just my inner thoughts, but the whole of me from birth is full of sin and unrighteousness. And I have to cast myself on the Savior. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus tells us at the end of this parable, um, very interesting that the Pharisee is pointing to the tax collector and pointing him out, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. And then Jesus points to him. These are those passages where you kind of wish you had the hand gestures of the Savior, where Jesus says to the tax collector, to the Pharisee, this man went home justified. And then he points at the Pharisee and not this man. What, what, what enables, what enables, what makes the difference between these two men? What, at the end of the day, that's the great question we should ask. What makes the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? Is it just adopting a mental posture of humility or thinking appropriately about ourselves or thinking, well, I could be worse, but I'm not as bad as I could be? What, what makes the difference? Well, it's the grace of God that makes the difference. Something has happened in the soul of the tax collector. But what makes the difference... And what enables the tax collector to go home justified and accepted by God and not the Pharisee is the one telling the story. Because he is marching to the cross. And when he is nailed to the tree, all of the tax collector's sins are put on him. Just like all of my sin and your sin, if you're in Christ, have been put on the Savior. Imputed to him. Think about that. Every wicked thing that this man had ever done, every vile and perverse and dishonorable and extorting and idolatrous and base and degenerate thing that this man had done, put on Jesus so that Jesus could say he was now righteous. There's this beautiful picture Jeffrey Thomas paints about um, uh, Jesus going to the Jordan to be baptized. And as you know, the baptism that Jesus underwent was what all Israelites were to undergo, a baptism of repentance. But Jesus didn't need repentance. And, and when we look at his baptism, we have to ask ourselves, what, what's the point of that? And Jeffrey Thomas says, I like to envision a long line of sinners standing in line waiting for John the Baptist to pour the waters of the Jordan over their head and to symbolically wash the pollution of their sin away, figuratively. 
And I like to envision, he says, there's a murderer, there's an adulterer, there's a thief, there's a molester, there's Jesus, there's a liar, there's an idolater. And right in that line stands the Savior. And he came to be numbered with the transgressors. And when Jesus steps into the Jordan River, it's as if John the Baptist takes the symbolically polluted water and pours it over him. Think about that. Symbolizing all the sins of his people going to be put on him when he's baptized under the wrath of God on the cross. You know, the publican got his prayer answered because God provided a propitiatory sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Now, that's everything, and you know that. You hear that, no doubt, in this church regularly. The question is, as we look at this, and we are meant to look in this picture, and we are not meant to just see the publican and the Pharisee. We are meant to see, where am am I in this? If someone were to take a cameo of our private conversations, what would I look like? If someone could reveal what was going on in my heart, what would it look like? Here's the beautiful thing. The moment we realize how sinful we are, the moment I realize just how rebellious I've been and how far short I've fallen of the glory of God, And the moment I cry out in desperation, oh God, have mercy on me, it's as if he says, I have already done that because I was not merciful to my son at the cross. I showed him no mercy. He drank the full cup of my wrath for you. It's very interesting. Every time someone in the Gospels cries out to God for mercy, he or she gets it. I've always thought that as an astonishing little thing. Every single person, Bartimaeus, ultimately Zacchaeus, this tax collector, Mary Magdalene, anyone who came to Jesus and, and what they wanted from him was mercy, propitiation, sacrifice, satisfaction, rest. They got it. I hope that you'll examine your own hearts as you um, consider this this morning, and and we are both willing to confess our self-righteousness and our lawlessness, and we are going to put ourselves down low so that God can exalt us in due time. You know, it's a great promise, and we'll hear about this more tonight. It's a great promise that whoever goes down to the lowest spot will be exalted. And that has to start in the first steps and every step after that that we take in our relationship to God. Every time we pray, we should be going down to the lowest place in brokenness and contrition, acknowledgement of what we are, knowing that God has provided a righteousness for us in Christ. And he gives it to us freely by grace. He clothes us, he covers us, he washes us, cleanses us, then he builds us up, and then he promises one day, and this is a beautiful thought, that tax collector will be in glory forever. 
a glorified saint before the throne of the Lamb forever, washed, cleansed, justified. He went home justified. He went to glory, and he will be glorified. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this picture. We pray that you would give us grace to see ourselves honestly in both the Pharisee and the tax collector. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would always give us hearts that are humble and broken, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging how far short we fall, acknowledging that we have nothing and that we are nothing and that we need from you everything that you have promised to give freely in Jesus Christ. We pray, our God, that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus and that you would help us to focus on our own need for redemption every day of our life until we're in glory. We pray that you would do that among the members of this church for your good and your glory and for the salvation of others. We pray, our God, that you would draw near to us as we continue worshiping you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.